Good morning and welcome to Regen. We are super glad to have you here today on this hot and steamy day. Um, thankfully, the air conditioning is working well here, unlike our house yesterday. Um, at Regen, we are passionate about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus, and so our hope and prayer is that that's what you experience um, this morning as we um, sing together, as we hear from God's word, and as we just spend time together. Just a couple of quick announcements today. Um, our check-ins right now, if you have a Facebook account and want to check in, our check-ins for the month of August are Go to the Basement, which is a ministry in Warren City that um, covers everything from people who are um, homeless, uh, living on the streets, feeding them, clothing them, um, just to do a ton of work in, in our community, also have a house for people in recovery. So um, your check-ins, if you use the hashtag RegenGives, they'll go to the basement. And then um, tonight we're going to be having a feast hosted by this beautiful row right here, the Bockers, and they have a pool. So it's hot today. Today is a good day to come to the feast and get in the pool. Yeah. And there's also fishing. We just, it just went up a notch, guys. Just got real. So swimming and fishing and eating. Um, bring a side dish to share um, or drinks or dessert. Um, so it'll be a fun time tonight. We're looking forward to that. And I think that's all of our announcements for this week. So I'm going to turn it over to Zach, who's going to pray for our offering. Hey, guys, I'm going to pass around this. But before we do that, we're just going to pray like usual. So um, just want to do that with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this time to get today. Thank you for being with us. <clears throat> Lord, I just ask that you uh, bless this offering, bless what we can um, just give up and sacrifice to you um, today and the rest of this week. And, and in doing so, Lord, I just ask that you take away all of the, the doubt that we have in you I ask that you take away the shame, the finger pointing, Lord, take that away from us, and uh, just take away the suffering um, that maybe each of us have going on, and, and, and just all around the world, Lord, just the things that, that strike our heart. Just pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, hey, Father, we, um, we're here today so that you can remind us of our identity. We're here today so you can remind us of who we are. And so would you speak in a voice that is clear to us? Would you speak in a voice that is inviting to us to be firmly rooted in who uh, you say that we are? God, we are not the struggles that we walked in with this week. We are not our past. We are not our present comfort we are not our wealth, we are yours. And so remind us of that uh, today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, kids are gonna go back with Miss Candace, and uh, yeah, we have new nursery staff over the next couple months. So if you've got a little one, they can head back. They're welcome to stay here. Everybody's like, oh, I'm so sorry for them making noise. I'm like, yeah, I'm bulletproof. I'm fine. So, um, uh, hey, uh, I'm Kyle. I get to be the pastor here. And Steph kind of shared with you a little bit. If you're not getting the weekly emails and going one further and reading them, huh, uh, please be doing that because we're sharing the vision behind um, Circles, 
which we're launching this fall. We launched one for high school students and middle school students over the course of the summer. And then we've got more circles coming, uh, at least two, maybe three, uh, for the rest of us that'll be on various nights of the week. One right now looks to be on Tuesday, uh, maybe one on Thursday, that I want to make sure that you are invited into. Uh, Because another way to think about circles is if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I don't feel cared for or I don't feel known, my first question will be, are you in a circle? Okay, so that will be like the main vehicle for your connection and one of the main vehicles for spiritual formation and one of the main vehicles that we connect with our people of peace, those people that are far from Jesus, but that we sense Jesus doing some work in the background in. So I'm excited about those and going to be writing a lot of the reconnects over the next month about that. Um, We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 as we kind of get nearer to the end of our Sermon on the Mount called Stranger Things, and I often brand these things and then don't bring it up again. So let's all remember that Stranger Things is this world where, is this show where a world is bumping up against and spilling over into our world. It's the world of the upside down, and that's how the kingdom of God works. This kingdom that Jesus says through his life and works and ministry is being brought about, and that we as his people now join in the bringing about of it. We carry that forward. I, I, was, I was raised in a home where the name of Jesus was spoken pretty frequently, and um, I can't really remember a time in my life where I didn't know the Jesus story, but it really became very crystal clear for me when I was in eighth grade and through the ministry of a church here in the area. I put my faith in Jesus, and I took my faith in Jesus very seriously in the way that only really an adolescent can. Uh, because I, I quickly realized it's either everything or nothing. It is either my whole life derives meaning from and is guided by Jesus, um, or all of it's just talk. Either he's at the peripheries when I maybe occasionally need him to be, or he is what defines my life. And so as an eighth grader into my high school years, uh, I was very vocal about my faith in ways that I'm sure were weird and frustrating and uncomfortable for my classmates because in my honors English class, and I throw the word honors in there just so you all know really how smart I am. You're welcome. Um, uh, we, uh, they laughed, internet. I don't think you heard it. Okay. Um, thanks. Okay. Um, just trying to loosen it up because it's about to get real. Um, we, we would debate a lot of things, and uh, being this wide-eyed Christian that I was, my senior year of high school, my nickname, by the way, was Pastor Kyle, which is kind of why I don't like being called that. Um, uh, I would kind of be arguing for what I perceived to be a Christian worldview and biblical values on social issues or whatever the novel that we were reading presented. And as I did this, there was this other classmate who was about my opposite and about every way who would always throw a wrench in the conversation and in my argument with a simple quote from Jesus. All he would say is, Kyle, Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. So who are you to say anything? And so being a a young Christian raised in a Bible-believing church, I went home, I opened up my Bible, and I read, where, where does Jesus say this? What does it mean? And when you read the words of Jesus on their face, value, it kind of leaves you in trouble because it made it, it sounds like my classmate 
was right. It sounds like that phrase we use, like that's just the pot calling the kettle black. It sounds like those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. It sounds like Jesus is saying, mind your own business. And a casual reading of Jesus' words and Jesus' words only would lead the reader to think that Jesus argues for our culture's highest mandate. That Jesus is arguing for tolerance, non-judgment, and love. I'm reading this really interesting book by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield was a, was a professor at the University of Syracuse or Syracuse University in New York, whatever. Um, and she was a radical feminist lesbian who like pioneered the fringes of LGBTQ scholarship, who had a radical conversion with Jesus because a friend, because the pastor who lived a couple doors down invited her over for dinner. She is now married to her husband, Kent, and they have four children that they've adopted. It's, it's a really interesting story. And she talks a lot about in this book about how in her lifetime, and especially say I'm 30, the last 15 years of my lifetime, our culture's values have shifted so quickly. Like in the early 2000s, Congress was passing like laws about this, that, or the other, and now it's like totally flipped. And, as a, and that's partially because our culture uses biblical words in a way that the Bible does not use them. I don't know if that makes sense. But it's kind of like when you're in a conversation and you find yourself stuck because everybody's using the same words, but we mean two different things. That's what's happened in our culture. And it feels like Jesus' instructions to his disciples in, seven, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7 come off arguing just for that, for tolerance, non-judgment, and love, but that's not what he's arguing for. He is not arguing for mute Christians. He's arguing for something else. So let's look at seven, one through six together. They're not all on the screen, or at least not all together, but, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation this time. It says, do not judge others as you will not be judged. And you, and, no, hang on. Do not judge others and, not as, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as, there's that as, you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by, with, by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Verse 6 says, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. Super interesting. And we will kind of brush by that and catch it later, verse 6. But let's look at verses 1 and 2 just to start. Jesus says, do not judge others and you will not be judged for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Now, before we go anywhere else, let's talk about a principle for how we interpret and apply scripture. We do not interpret the whole Bible through one verse we interpret one verse through the lens of the whole Bible. This is vastly important, and if you grew up in Sunday school, you kind of have a knowledge of this, but yet you don't. So let me say it again. We do not interpret all of Scripture, the whole book, through one verse. We use the whole book to interpret one verse. The word you would want to write down if you're taking notes is the word context. 
It is all about context. It is about what comes before and what comes after. It is about understanding where you are in this particular moment against the grain of the whole arc of Scripture. And by the way, um, next year we're going to do about five or six weeks on studying the Bible. Like we're just going to spend some time together learning what that means. And so, for example, if we look at the context of verse 1, if we read verse 1 of chapter 7, do not judge and you will not be judged, if we read that by itself, it seems to imply I need to mind my own business, avoid being a pot calling the kettle black, and never say anything to Brendan, never say anything to Art, never say anything to Lindsay, never say anything to Kat, never say anything to Randy about what I see as their behavior being outside the line of the way of Jesus. It, It seems to indicate that, except... Except, look at verse 6 that Jesus calls someone pigs and dogs. And if you jump down to verse 20 of chapter 7, Jesus says, you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can also identify people by their actions. Jesus is saying that on the basis of a person's actions, I can know what's going on inside of them. Now, if you turn a few pages over into Matthew 18, Matthew 18, verse 15, which is a text we're going to look at really closely in October and November, because we're going to do a series on conflict called Hot Mess. And, um, and verse 15 says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. Okay, the, the Greek of that does not say, talk about it with five other people first and then never actually address it with the real person. It says, go directly to the person and have a conversation with them. Again, this implies that I can make a, what for lack of a better word, an evaluation, a judgment on the basis of a a person's character and their actions and speak to them. Then it gets really messed up in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, where James says, my dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. This means verse 19 and 20 are commanding me to make an evaluation to see if young Dan is, has wandered away from what truth is and then to go to him and speak to him about it. So clearly, judge not lest you be judged does not mean shut up and mind your own business. Jesus is not forbidding a kind of discerning evaluation of another's actions despite what my high school classmate would say, and we're going to come back to that. Jesus instead is forbidding something a little more specific. What Jesus says is that when we judge others, and this word judge is kind of hard to capture, but it means to make an evaluation of someone else's behavior. Jesus says that we ought to do so carefully. He's trying to get us from being flippant or hyperly critical. He wants us to do this carefully because verses 3, 4, and 5 get very real because verses 3, 4, and 5 says that the measure I use to judge someone else is the measure with which I will be judged. Another way of saying this could be this. It would be wise to evaluate someone's behavior as you yourself would like to be evaluated. It's kind of a spin on the golden rule in verse 12, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Evaluate the behavior of others in a way that you would like to be evaluated. No one wants every action and motive to be evaluated critically and in an exacting way. Instead, what we want is to be evaluated with generosity, 
with the benefit of the doubt, with kindness and tenderness. And this is important because, and what, this is what Jesus is trying to actually point out, is that we are far more critical of others' behavior than we are of our own. We are far more critical of our spouse's behavior, of our kids' behavior, our coworkers' behavior, those we work in ministry with, on our teams, our leadership, the leadership that God has put over us. We are far more critical of their behavior than we are of our own. Because when somebody that we know messes up, we immediately like go, yes, I, I knew that deep down they were a lying, conniving, weaselly person. I knew it. I knew it. I knew that they were controlling. I knew that they were manipulative. I knew that they were a control freak. I knew that they were selfish. I knew that they were greedy. When someone makes one mistake, we know in that moment everything we need to know about their character. But when we make a mistake, we have a good reason for it. When someone else does something stupid, boy, does that just say, A to Z, everything we ever needed to know. But if, when I make a mistake, if you just knew my circumstances, if you knew the reasons I did what I did. So imagine you're at the bank tomorrow, because fun fact, banks are closed on Sundays, and uh, you are there, and somebody cuts in front of you, okay? You're not happy, right? It is not cool when someone cuts in front of you in line, but if you were in a hurry and you needed to get into and out of the bank and you cut the line, it would be okay. Why? Because I have special circumstances, but the person who cut me, they're a jerk. There's an inconsistency in the way that we evaluate each other's behavior. There's an inconsistency that Jesus is putting his finger on. In fact, he uses the word hypocrite to unpack it. That's, Danny taught about this when we got to the beginning of chapter 6, because that's where Jesus starts throwing this word around. And literally, it was this word used for masked actors, and Jesus is saying, you're wearing a mask while at the same time trying to rip other people's masks off. There's an inconsistency in our own hearts, and Jesus is trying to shape. Here's what Jesus is trying to do in this text. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human and the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus knows that as disciples living together in community, my stuff is going to bump up against your stuff. Your sin is going to bump up against me. My sin is going to bump up against you. And it's not an if thing, it's a when thing. And Jesus is trying to shape how we respond to one another's sins and weaknesses and flaws of character. And he says in verse 3, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own. You hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. I have a prop. Okay? Jesus says that we walk around, all of us, with a log in our own eye, a plank in our own eye. My original thought about this had been like to get like a six or eight foot just thing, right? I cannot see past this. Jesus says, when I go to Steph and I see a speck in her eye, first of all, this creates like weirdly like two Stephs in my vision, right? So like, and I can't even get all that close to her. I can't get all that close to Zach when I have this in my eye. So how could I even think about reaching out and grabbing a speck when I can't see clearly slash please don't touch my eyeballs, right? Anybody else, right? Like give me tweezers and I'll handle that. Please don't be getting in there. I, I can't see clearly what Jesus is saying. As long as I've not dealt with my stuff, I have limited capacity 
to accurately and without bias and without trying to control somebody, an ability to kind of get the speck out of their own. And so Jesus says, let's do the logical thing. See, Jesus is smart. Jesus says, why don't we start by pulling the log out of our own eye? As long as the log is in your eye, as long as the plank is sticking out of your eye like Pinocchio, you're going to have limited ability to help someone else. So he says, let's start by removing the plank from our own eye. And we'll talk about what that looks like in a second. We have a limited capacity, and I think this is important, we have a limited capacity to address it. What I love about verse 3, 4, and 5 is that Jesus doesn't just address behavior, he addresses motivation. So look, the operative word in verse 3 is this word worry. Why worry about a speck in your brother or sister's eye when you have a log in your own? Jesus is smart. He names in a word our motivation and behavior because we see sin in someone else's life. We see a flaw in their character. We see something that we don't like in our spouse and a family member in our church or coworker, and we don't like it. And do you know what we love to do? We love to get all worried and emotionally stirred up and fretful and we love just to like wring our hands and just verbally just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about this person's flaw and we love to get so emotionally involved and and think about it and say well you know what I would say if I could I would just say this and and you kind of just spiral and spiral and spiral and spiral on the whole process you forget that from your eye is sticking out a giant plank and in the end, all of this fretfulness and anxiety, which ultimately leads to like gossip and slander, it's a distraction and it's a red herring because here's what we know. We know that we have a plank in our own eye and fun fact, we like our plank. We like our sin. So let's all talk about somebody else's sin together so I get to keep my plank and let's get all fretful and worried and stirred up because I'll tell you what, when we, lear we learned at about 12 years old that gossip and slander and drama were really fun and all of us, I mean, I, I talked all the time about with like middle-aged middle schoolers who haven't let it go because it's fun. We like our anger. We like how gossip makes us feel validated and in the know. We like treating our spouse in a way that demeans them because they're easier to control. So we turn every, everybody's attention over there so that we, that we don't see us. And Jesus says, maybe the way forward isn't to spend all of that emotional energy on other people. Maybe we ought to invest like 10% of that emotional energy into getting the plank out of your own eye. Jesus uses this word worry because he's not only concerned about behavior, he's concerned about heart. He's concerned about desire. He's concerned about your will. He sees the heart. He sees our hearts. He sees us being critical and judgmental. He sees us, ultimately, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be like God. We're trying to be like God. We're putting ourselves in his place. This is the nature of sin. The nature of sin isn't some sort of like psychological defense. It isn't just a bad habit. The nature of sin is us trying to be in God's place. In Genesis chapter 3, 
Author of Genesis records how sin enters the world, Adam and Eve together. It's not a woman problem. It's a man and woman problem. It's an all of us together problem. Are listening to the serpent speak, and the serpent says about this tree that God has told them not to eat. It's the one law that they have. He said, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat that fruit and that you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the minute the serpent said, you will be like God, their eyes got a little bigger and their pulse started racing a little faster because being like God sounds really, really good. When we judge others, we are ultimately taking the place of God because we see some behavior in someone's life that we don't like. We see sin in their life that we don't like, and we see God not dealing with it on our timetable and in the way that we want to. And so we very gently say to Jesus, you know what? I've got this one. You know, Jesus, you're great. Why don't you sit, just have a water break. I'll handle this one. But the reason that's dangerous for our souls is because we are not like God. It is beyond our capacity to see someone's sin and judge it accurately and without bias and at the same time to continue loving them steadfastly. And so what ultimately happens is we push God out of the way and, and we get fretful and anxious and we try to push God out of the picture. And that's why Jesus is warning against judging. That's what Jesus is forbidding in this text is trying to be like God. Trying to be like God. What God is calling us to, what is invited of us in this text is what one commentator called a rare degree. In other words, very hard to find a rare degree of self-awareness combined with unselfish concern for someone else. Let me say that again. A rare degree of self-awareness combined with unselfish concern for others. That's what he wants together. In other words, we have to engage in self-awareness to see our stuff and our sin. Psalm 51 says, search me, O God, and show me if there is any unrighteous way in me. Now, it's possible to go to this kind of weird, unhealthy extreme where we just kind of like obsess about our sin with God, but there's another extreme where we just don't even really talk about it because we're claiming the victory and not really engaging in spiritual formation. What Jesus is calling us to is to be clear about, we talked about this a few weeks, a few weeks ago there was a graphic that talked about your before the cross and on the cross and off the cross walking in victory. It's about being clear about where those areas are uh, that you're very much on the cross. And one of the areas that I am on the cross right now is learning how to lead and parent and engage in relationships, not on the force of my personality or on, the, on my skill or competency, right? Like indirect effort for fruit that lasts as opposed to a, per, a cult of personality. It's very hard. We have to name where we want to be like me in control. We have to name where we want to be right and self-righteous. So we need to have that self-awareness, but we also need to have that unselfish concern. And the operative word in the phrase unselfish concern is what? Unselfish. It is very easy to have selfish concern for our spouse. 
It is very easy to have selfish concern for our kids. It is very easy to have selfish concern for our friends. It is very easy to have selfish concern for our parents, for our coworkers, for our bosses, again, for our spiritual leadership. Because what selfish concern is at its root is if my spouse would just stop doing this thing, then I would be less annoyed. If my kids would just stop doing this thing, my life would be more peaceful. My life would just be so much easier if so-and-so behaved this way. But it's not about making your life easier. Plot twist, it's not. Unselfish concern looks at someone and says, I would love for that behavior to stop because then they could have more of Jesus. I would love for that behavior to stop because then they could be more faithfully following the way. I would love for that behavior to stop because then they could have joy and peace and righteousness. I'm reading a phenomenal book right now. It's my first parenting book. It's called Families Where Grace is in Place, uh, Parenting and Marriage Without Manipulation, contr- manipulation, Legalism, or Shame. Blowing my mind. Because the reality in marriage is that we're often trying to control our spouse's behavior. We want our spouse to come to church so we guilt and shame and manipulate them until they come. We want our kids to behave so we guilt and shame and manipulate them until they do what we want them to do. We want our parents to do this thing so we guilt and shame and manipulate. This book is so good. There's probably going to be this fall, um, we're going to maybe do a super high challenge book club on this um, for married couples um, and couples considering marriage. But high challenge will mean like don't come unless, unless you've read it and like you're, don't come unless you're ready to do it. But I think like it's profoundly um, shaping already. Like I read half of it and I was like, I think I need to put this down because if I read all of it, I'll be like, well, I did it, so I'm great. And I'm like, no, I probably need to experience some change there. We need self-awareness, self-awareness plus unselfish concern. Jesus is not asking us to be mute. Jesus is not asking us to just watch a person wander off into sin, but Jesus is asking us to ensure that when we are addressing someone about their sin, that we have no motive of selfish gain in it, and that we have done our best to be humbly removing the plank in our own eye, which is a process. So I want to talk about ways that we'll do this, but let me just take you back to my high school English class for a minute. There I am, 16, insecure as all get out. Tall and lanky and gangly and braces, um, hot mess, right? Aren't you so glad that we grew up beyond high school? Do you know what I mean? Like, thank you, Jesus. Um, I'm arguing for these biblical principles on this social issue or in response to that or saying this, that, or the other. And my classmate says, who are you to judge? He's wanting me to limit my moral judgment, pointing out that I have no right to weigh down the world with my opinion. And can I tell you the truth? My classmate was right. My classmate was right. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians 5, uh, it's not going to be on the screen. I think maybe just a little bit of it. I can't remember. 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and there's this, well, frankly, there's a dude sleeping with his stepmom. And everybody is like, how progressive are we? Right? We're like so in on like social values. Like we've got so many likes on our Facebook page. Like we're retweeting the pictures of like dude sitting with his stepmom in like weird, gross, handsy way in church, right? 
and they think they're so cool. And what Paul is correcting them on is that instead of addressing this person in their midst, what they have also done is replaced that with yelling at the city of Corinth for not being more of the way of Jesus. So in verse, uh, look at verse 11 of chapter 5. Well, look at verse 9. Let's put it in context. Verse 9. When I wrote to you before, fun fact, 1 Corinthians is actually our second Corinthians. There was a letter that came before 1 Corinthians that we don't have. Um, but Paul says, when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or who are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. He, look at this. He says, you would have to leave the world to avoid people like that. And that is what Christianity in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s tried to do. Let's see if we can withdraw and retreat. A really interesting book came out like three years ago called The Benedict Option. Uh, and in it, this guy is arguing for what we need to do as Christians is withdraw from the world until uh, the social climate of our culture is more attuned to Christian values, kind of reflecting on the, on the Benedictine monastery movement in the Middle Ages. But he says, you would have to leave the world to avoid people like that. But, verse 11, I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer in Jesus, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. So what Christians did was, there's all of these worldly crazy people, and we're going to go hang out with each other. Because we all like say we're Christians, so that's really good. But what actually happens is there are Christians that we are fellowshipping with and hanging out with and spending time with that claim to be a believer but that are doing all sorts of things. First and Second Timothy, Paul says, if there is somebody among you who is a gossip or who is divisive, have nothing to do with them. Paul says, Scripture says, don't have anything to do with Christians that are behaving badly. And when you see the world behaving badly, move toward them and have a meal with them. Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always on his way to have dinner with somebody practice hospitality toward them. What, 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 what scripture says is I was wrong to hold non-Christian classmates and we are wrong to hold our non-Christian culture to a Christian standard. Legislatively, in our family relationships. And I'm not saying that we don't advocate for the poor or we don't advocate for public policy. That's another conversation entirely. What we are saying is that our judgment is reserved for those on the inside, not on the outside, because we judge the world on the outside and yell about them and vote about them for the same reason that we get all of our Christian friends together to gossip about whoever in our community, because it just lets us distract and change the story from our problems. So if we point out the evil in the world, nobody will notice that we're a hot mess over here. Is that how it works? We are called to be salt and light. We're called to be positive influences in our culture, but we do not do that by yelling or protesting or voting or sharing on Facebook. Do not, church, be known for your opinion and do not share an opinion more strongly than you share the gospel. We love the Enneagram. It's a personality thing. I hope I talk about Jesus more than I talk about the Enneagram. Steph has been seeing a doctor of naturopathic medicine like, I hope we talk about Jesus more than we talk about the blood type diet. Do you know what I mean? Through ordinary acts of love and service and hospitality toward our neighbors, that's how we change things, not by yelling. So how do we take seriously 
the words of Jesus in this text. Where do we go? First, take your sin seriously, or in other words, remove the log from your own eye. Take a beat and remove the plank from your own eye. And remove, generally, as long as we are on this side of heaven, is more of a process than a one-time decision. It's more of an engagement with God through spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices by which uh, the Puritan John Owen would say, we mortify our flesh. John Owen, 1656, on the mortification of sin. Little treatise. Listen, the Puritans get a bad rap because we all read what book about the Puritans in high school? Scarlet Letter. Listen, they were smart. They understood sin. They understood holiness. They were a little crazy, but they understood sin and they understood holiness. And in 1656, John Owen writes a book that is essentially about how we take the plank out of our eye. How do we remove the plank from our own eye? How do we put to death the deeds of the flesh is the word scripture would use. And if you want to know this, go home and read Romans 6, 7, and 8, because Romans 6, 7, and 8 talk about even though we've stepped across the line of faith and Jesus has mastery over my whole life, there is still sin inside of me that bubbles up from time to time. And it is a battle that we fight that we will not end until we reach glory. And in his little book on the mortification of sin, John Owen writes, the vigor, power, and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. A lot of us claim the name of Jesus and find our spiritual life boring and bland. Psalm 51, where it says, search me, O God, it says, restore to me the joy of our salvation. We don't have the joy or the vigor or the power or the comfort because it's so mixed up with sin. We don't experience what we feel like our neighbors and our friends are experiencing because we're so stuck in this rut. Jesus says, remove the log from your own eye by the power of the spirit and through the practice of spiritual disciplines and engagement with community, we put sin to death in our lives. And if we do that, we will see the vigor and the power and the comfort increasing. And God is gracious, and sometimes the vicar's there with this ongoing sin. But my question is, what sin are you confessing? Okay, Scripture says confess your sins to one another, not confess someone else's sins to another, right? What, what sin are you confessing? How are you bringing your weaknesses to God? How are you demonstrating the truth that when you are weak, you are strong, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians Second, so we take sin seriously, we remove the log, and then second, we speak the truth in love. See, every once in a while, it's almost like he knows what he's doing, right? It's almost like these things line up in sequence and reinforcement. Sometimes the Lord just makes this happen. Because we talked about speaking the truth in love for two weeks back in May, I think, and Aaron did a good job of unpacking what that looks like. Speak the truth in love to someone else regarding their sin, or perhaps a better way to say it would be to offer someone else a washcloth, the message um, translation of this little passage, I love this, um, says, do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face and you might be fit, you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. 
Once we've wiped the mess off our own face, we find that we can offer someone else a washcloth. This text does not make us mute. It calls us to humbly seek to grow together in love for God and love for one another as we speak the truth in love and holiness and justice, and I can offer someone a washcloth. I can't make them wash their face. Married couples, you cannot control your spouse. You cannot make them wash their face, which is why Jesus says in verse 6, you know, you're going to offer truth to somebody. You're going to offer pearls and and it's going to end up you're offering it to a pig and they're going to trample on it. Jesus isn't saying there are certain kind of people are pigs. It's that pigs have no use for pearls. And every married person is like, yeah, my spouse behaves like a pig sometime. I mean, my parents behave like pigs sometime. Like my, my, you know, my, my coworkers behave like pigs sometime, but it's just that they can't get it. It's that they don't have any need to value it, but we can offer someone a washcloth. And again, Aaron did such a good job of unpacking this. I can hold up mirrors I don't want somebody sticking their finger in my eye to get the speck. But I can hold up a mirror and offer somebody a pair of tweezers. I can say, hey, I've been noticing a certain tendency in your speech lately, and it doesn't seem like who I know you to be. I can avoid using the words never and always, because nobody never does something or always does something else. And I could instead say, I feel like I might be neglecting my duty as your spiritual sibling if I don't lovingly point out this tendency to you. If you've done pre-marriage with us, it's, it's saying things like, I wish you would take the things on the stairs upstairs when you go upstairs because it would make me feel less stressed. I wish you would be kinder to my parents when we hang out with them because it would make me feel less on edge. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is trying to set us free, not from money or sex this time, but from the stronghold of power and control. And instead of worrying about one another's behavior and trying to control it, we can develop a community of love and steadfast faithfulness that reveals the character of Jesus and his upside-down kingdom to one another and to the world. Let's pray. God, some of us walked in this morning with um, a, lot of, a lot of dirt on our face and with a big old plank in our eye. The liturgy would say, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have allowed planks into our eyes. And so, Father, in this moment, we just name those things. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come alongside of us as we remove the log from our own eye and even at the same time speak the truth and love to our brothers and sisters. Help us to be gracious in our words, persistent in our address, and may our confrontation bring about repentance. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We come to the table every week and find a Jesus who welcomes us 
to this meal, planks and all. That there is no log in our eye so long that it would prevent us from reaching the table. In my mind's eye, I almost see someone coming to the table and Jesus grabbing the plank and moving slowly and slowly closer and closer to offer himself. Jesus saw our logs and our planks and he offered himself for us on the night when he was betrayed. Jesus saw the smudges in our face and poured out his blood, which was the only cleaner that could remove it. And he says that even with our planks and our smudges, we are welcome to his table. If you have a pulse, you are welcome here. Uh, and so, um, 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 how am I going to do this? Steph and Catherine and Zachary. Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that in the eating and drinking of them, we might find rest even as we carry these logs around. This we pray in the name of the one who died and rose again for us. His name is Jesus. Amen. The table is open. I wonder, I wonder if the cost of not removing the log from your eye could be you would not see Jesus constantly moving toward you. And so with clear eyes, may you see the Jesus who moves toward you this week. I love you, and we'll see you tonight at uh, the feast. Peace.